With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio. Conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. With tonight's host, Jeff Hendler. Hi everyone. Welcome to Voice of Evolution Radio. I'm Jeff Hendler. Get ready for another interview with the Keeper of Souls Purpose. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome to the show. And please consider listening to our previous programs on demand at www.thevoiceofevolution.com. That way you can catch up with all our conversations with the Keeper. And there's really no other introduction necessary or possible, so I'll just bring him into the studio. Keeper, welcome back. Hello, Jess. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Hey, you're doing small talk. That's very human of you. Well, not so small, more of a genuine interest in how you are, actually. And is that your answer? You know, it is, actually. I'm feeling really good about today and our time together. Uh, How about you? I'm very eager to speak with you today as well. Excellent. What do you have in mind? Well, I'd like to speak about the natural order of things, what you humans call birth, death, and dying. Okay. Um, Any reason for that particular subject? Oh, I recognize that reluctance by now, Jeff. There's nothing cataclysmic in my wanting to talk about these things. There's been a lot of this energy in the human space lately. Actually, a lot of energy in Earth's space around endings and beginnings, births and deaths. And since my purpose is to offer perspective, I think it's a good time to have this conversation. Okay, then. Good to know. And as always, I want to remind the listeners that you offer these perspectives through the three lenses you've shared in the past. The human-soul connection, the environment, meaning Earth and all of the human experience, and then evolution itself. Yes. So before we even begin, here's a disclaimer about the subject that we're about to explore. I can only speak about these things from the three lenses. When it comes to human life, I've never experienced the human bond. I've never experienced the loss of a human the way you humans do, or the birth of a human for that matter. I sense that these are among the deepest emotions a human experiences, so I want the listeners to know that. Even if some things I say sound like the human is a device for the soul, I also want the listeners to know that I respect the human perspective. It's really the paradox of the first lens, being a device and yet not a device, and living in the mystery of all that exists without explanation. It's been a while since you used that expression, Keeper. And while I understand what you're saying, I'll continue to be the pulse of the listener and challenge anything that sounds too much like a device. (laughs) I'd be disappointed if you didn't, Jeff. (laughs) That's good, Keeper. Thank you. Anything else we should know before you get started? Well, actually, yes, there is. Just know that I'll be speaking about birth as the opposite of death. Many humans believe that the opposite of death is life, when really, it's birth. Do you care to say more about that? Life is energy, and energy is eternal. Well, at least for now. For now? Is that the beginning of another story? Well, who knows? All stories are subject to change, and you often ascribe permanence to your stories, which makes for all that chaos when they change. So here's what I propose, Jeff. Let's approach this topic both literally and figuratively, starting with the birth event of a human and then moving on to the birth of ideas and other things. 
Actually, the story starts before birth, since the soul's purpose and contract begin well before any human birth event. So, the waiting room? Yes, the soul's waiting room is a good place to start. Once the soul has its purpose, the list in the waiting room, if you recall, begins the soul's preparation for its journey, visiting the third dimension space that you humans call the womb, and is still very much part of the soul's realm. It's like a bridge that a soul crosses many times before the birth event. Most souls only settle in for the journey a short time before, although there's no hard and fast rule about it, so please don't make one up. So a soul, what, comes and goes before birth? That's right. Some souls don't make the final crossing until the very last moment. Some choose not to complete the journey, even though they've contracted and prepared for it. And some end the journey before the actual birth, because that is the contract. So I want to slow this down just a bit, Keeper. Uh, can you say more about this coming and going of the soul before birth? Well, the human organism doesn't require the soul to be there 24-7, as you call it, until the actual birth event. It's developing and growing and taking care of its own needs, you might say. And the soul also requires time to prepare and adapt to every journey it makes to the human realm. You must understand that as energy in the soul's realm, there's nothing to confine a soul. Like me, attention is easily focused in multiple directions simultaneously. So it takes some getting used to being limited like that. And there's also the processing of the soul's purpose by the soul. There's the goal of the new lifetime, the chief obstacle or feature that the human life will experience, and a lot more. All of this has to be processed and then forgotten before the birth event. Forgetting the purpose and goals. And obstacles. Okay, and obstacles is something we discover as humans, as well as getting used to the limitations of a physical form during the gestation period. That has some useful clarity to it, Jeff. Thanks for summing it up so succinctly. You know, you already have an expression that describes the first time a soul connects with its human form or organism. It's what you call the quickening. The quickening? So for me, as crazy as it sounds, that reminds me of the movie The Highlander. Well, the series of Highlander films. You know, when the immortal's energy is released and transferred to another immortal. That, that's what they called the quickening, right? Not that I'm asking you or expecting you to know the movie, unless you do. You seem to be aware of a lot of our films and other things like that, Keeper. Well, the word quick means alive. So the quickening is a moment of life when the yet-to-be-born presence is felt for the first time. Without the soul, all you have is an organism, a living organism, of course. That organism is its own system with moving parts and predictive behaviors that affect the functioning of the organism. And yet it's the soul that creates the human being, the person that this organism is to become. I'm paying pretty close attention to your choice of words here, Keeper, because this is actually a huge debate among us humans. But I'm sure you know that. Oh, yes, I'm aware. And let me say that there is an exchange that begins with the quickening, an exchange between the soul and the human organism. It's a transference of energy and knowledge. And what I can surmise from what you shared is that the quickening in your movie is about energy being released in exchange. Is that right? Well, one of the actors in the film described it as the receiving of all the power and knowledge another immortal has obtained throughout his or her life. It's like the receiving of a sacrament or a massive orgasm. And that's a quote, by the way. Oh, that's an interesting comparison then, your Highlander film. It is something sacred to humans and souls. There's a transfer of power and knowledge taking place that could be considered orgasmic. Even in human sexual behavior, there's a transfer of power and knowledge taking place. It's a metaphysical exchange of information, if you like. 
And it sometimes results in a biological reproductive exchange of information as well. Never thought of it that way before. So that's the quickening seen from the first lens, a human soul connection that creates movement or a flutter, I think it's called. So again, this puts us right in the middle of the never-ending debate about when life begins. How so? Well, you know, when life begins. But it doesn't. I mean, begin, that is. Well, neither does it end, Jeff. It just is. I thought I just explained that. Well, yes, you did. I understand that from your perspective, and yet here in the human realm, it's a debate that's deeply tied to women's reproductive rights, pro-life versus pro-choice, you know, all of that. Ah, the story of the feminine divine and the ancient power struggle of the masculine and the feminine. Yes, it is a human debate. And you really entangled three distinct topics here, Jeff. Life itself, when humans believe life as a human begins, and women's reproductive rights. And can you untangle those three topics for us? Well, I can offer a perspective, but it isn't my place to untangle a purely human debate. Remember, I'm not here to step in and direct your evolution. You're here to do that for yourselves, especially when it comes to the third part of the question. And in regards to that third part, we will be talking about the feminine divine in one of our next few conversations, so I prefer to hold any thoughts till then. Fair enough. And we will, right, have that conversation? Oh yes, and soon. So to go back to the first part of that question, life has no beginning or end. So perhaps I'll focus on the second part, human life, from a soul's perspective, of course. Of course. So understand that no human is born without a soul. Not even the worst of us? I think I recognize that as sarcasm and not something you expect me to answer. Is that right? Unless there's a different answer. So no, it was sarcasm, Keeper. Then let me speak from the second lens, the environment and the science. So human life, at the moment of fertilization, when a sperm and an egg connect, a new independent cell is formed, a zygote, from the both of them. And the process of building a human form begins. This form is made up of a group of cells capable of interacting as an organism. And that's a fact. You understand that? I understand what you're saying, yes. Uh, so right from the very beginning, the sperm and the egg create the zygote. That one cell is engineered to act as a specific organism. It's like all the examples you've used about life being prepared for an evolution, even before there's a reason to evolve. Is that about right? Well, evolution is a response to something in the environment that's powerful enough to change the original story. And this is an age-old story with a very predictable outcome, although I understand the equating of the two. It's not what you humans call a crapshoot. There's no chance that the zygote will develop into something else, like a duck, for example. It's engineered to become a human, and only a human. But it's a good reference back to our previous conversations and the interconnectedness of everything. And I realize that there's something else to say here about evolution that may put the difference in perspective as we talk about birth in the literal sense. Second lens, the environment, has evolved in such a way that there are more cesarean births than ever before. Is that true? I think so. So are humans getting larger as we evolve? Well, actually what's happening is historically that both mother and child would have died in the birth event, the baby too large to fit through the birth canal, you understand. Now with the advent of cesarean birth, however, both typically survive, which means that the gene for the narrow birth canal or a larger baby are carried down to the next generation. A gene that might have died out or been selected out is now able to continue. So, more caesareans create more caesareans. 
Well, in essence, yes, that's evolution, although it doesn't impact the entire human species at this time. Now, getting back to this idea of our conversation as a religious perspective, I want to stress that it's solely a first lens perspective. The soul contains the characteristics that make this growing organism a human being. And I'll repeat what I just said a minute ago. Every human being has a soul, even if you'd like to ascribe a soulless persona to many of your human counterparts. So are you saying life begins for us at fertilization or when the soul, what, connects and exchanges information for the first time or when it finally settles in for want of a better way to say it? I can see that you want me to settle this debate for you about this distinction you've made called human life, Jeff. I'm saying that life has no beginning or end. When human life begins is a choice that each of you has to make for yourselves. Any experience a human has or a decision that a human makes is based on what the soul brings to that human, the soul's goal, what its journey to learn as a human, its age and type added to all the variables that show up in the human's life, how it grows up, how it's marginalized, because you are all in some way, and what's going on in this world around you. Every human has his or her own experience as a human, and all this shapes belief, and belief shapes your stories. Even when it comes to what governments or religions tell us is right or wrong? Ah, even when it comes to governments or religions wanting to control your beliefs because the leaders of those religions and governments are acting out their goals and obstacles too. The story's so ancient. You align with a leader or a system when their stories match your own stories because you believe your needs will be met. Okay, so let me restate this. What I'm hearing is there's the science, which seems pretty easy to fact check. And then there's the first lens, the spiritual nature of our being human. No human born without a soul, and the soul contains all the characteristics of the human life that's to come. You also said that a human organism, to use your words, is a living organism preparing itself for the soul. So I'm really not sure I can draw any conclusion about when human life begins from what you've said. Good, because you're meant to draw your own conclusion, Jeff. Or you could draw this conclusion if you like. You are always in choice about what you believe and the stories you create. Now that's the part that sounds like a crapshoot keeper. I'm just saying what I'm feeling here and maybe for the listeners too. Perhaps it is a crapshoot, Jeff, in a way, or at least has the elements of a crapshoot. The alternative is you let governments and religions, or the keeper of the soul's purpose for that matter, make these choices for you and you never look back. You never question them again. Well, that doesn't sound much like freedom. Because it isn't. So, we have the responsibility and freedom of making our own choices. What if we get it wrong? Spiritually, I mean. Oh, you can't. There will always be earthly consequences, one action leading to another and another. And that question of yours suggests something punitive about choice, a punishment of some kind if you get it wrong. That doesn't exist. Well, not in the soul's realm at any rate. Certainly wants to exist here these days. Okay. Getting back to the idea of birth, say more about some souls not completing the journey. I, I'm assuming you're talking about miscarriage, stillbirth, or even abortion. I realize how emotionally charged this is in the human realm. In the soul's realm, we understand that it's the natural order of things. It may interest you to know that sometimes a different soul takes the place of the original soul, or a second soul accompanies another soul in utero only until moments before birth, never intending to complete the birth process itself and some souls contract to make the human journey together. Like twins? Yes, like twins, triplets, and other multiple births. They're all contracts. And occasionally an entire cadence, if you remember that word, Jeff. Yes, I do. 
An entire cadence wants to journey together, although some may withdraw because of the human's capacity to carry so many human forms at any one time. Those souls usually find another way to join the rest when that happens. So very device-like, Keeper. Sounds great for the souls and just more sadness or tragedy for the humans. Yes, I do see your point. We must keep referring to the human emotional context of this conversation, Jeff, and I trust you to keep doing that. Okay, I want to get back to this idea that a contract completes before birth. Well, everything is contractual, even when a human makes a choice. There's always a contract in place between souls, so there are often two or more goals or obstacles happening simultaneously in this experience. Then what we see as choice may in fact be part of a soul's contract or a contract between souls for the sake of some kind of learning and growth. That's what you're saying, right? The choice is always real, Jeff, because the human experience is real, I might add. My sense we could get stuck here, and there's so much more to talk about when it comes to the natural order of things, birth, death, and dying. What I will say is there's no escaping a soul's purpose or the learning. Each soul has its own learning goal, and purpose will find a way. So I'm going to be the pulse of the listener here and say that what's coming up for me is the expression, we make plans and God laughs. Oh, hardly, Jeff. Although I don't want this moment to pass without saying that if laughter is part of the infinite, then so is deep sorrow. You understand that? I do, yes. Let me add that every time you use the word God, be careful that you're not unknowingly giving away your power. The infinite includes you, not separate from a God that may be separate from you or live up there somewhere. Okay, noted. I'll try and remember to talk about the infinite rather than give this any organized religious connotation. Some listeners have asked that question, by the way. What's the religion you're supporting? Our answer always is that we're not. This isn't meant to be a religious conversation or a scientific one. Simply, it's an integral story of what you call all that exists without explanation. And of course, we humans seek the explanation all the time and compartmentalize these stories rather than see it as a yes and or both and. Right. This isn't about religion, unless we're talking about religion. And it isn't about science, unless we're talking about science. And it certainly isn't about politics, unless we're talking about politics. And yet it's about all of those things simultaneously in a way. You've given it a profound context, Jeff, and I'm very pleased that that's how you see it, because that's how it's intended. Like any good paradox or mystery, Keeper. Let me ask you this. These souls you're talking about, the ones that don't complete the journey to the human realm, even if it's pregnancy that's been terminated, do those souls ever come back? To the same human, I mean. An insightful question, and the answer is, it all depends. Souls incarnate hundreds, even thousands of times as humans. The soul always chooses its purpose. So if it chooses not to return to the same human, then it doesn't. It's not about punishment, if that's what you're asking. There's no animosity or rage. The soul already accepted the outcome. You know, Jeff, I must tell you that as we're speaking, I'm feeling a great leaning in of energy from the soul's realm. And this is the second time that's happened here. And I believe the first time is when we talked about messengers in the LGBTQ community, right? This is sacred space we're creating here, Jeff. I just want you and your listeners to know that we are not alone in this conversation. Is that the chills I keep getting as we talk about this? If that's your sign that there's truth in the space. I'm struck by the freedom of it all, and, and also the forgiveness that's available to us as humans throughout this first lens perspective. So much human struggle and need for forgiveness is self-inflicted, Jeff. Yes, that's true. And Keeper, I'm hoping your message conveys that and provides some comfort to anyone listening. Well, I understand. And at the same time, I don't know that my goal here is to be comforting. 
And this may be where I'm ill-equipped to fully understand your human experience, just as you might not be able to fully understand mine. I think it's a really tough concept for us, frankly. And when another person tries to convince us that some purpose is fulfilled when we're in our own grief, well, it just sounds like a cliche or a platitude. I realize that we're talking more about death here than birth. And it's just another one of those things not to say to a grieving person, you know? Grief doesn't end. It's incorporated as energy in both of our realms. And I do hear what you're saying, Jeff. That's why I offer all this with that caveat, that it's only an offer of perspective. Thank you for adding that, Keeper. So are we complete about birth? And if so, what about the other? Dying and death. You say that as if there's a separateness there. We haven't yet talked about the other types of birth. The birth of something, an idea, a story, an era, even a planet. It's a less debated birth, actually, and it's still an exchange of information, an orgasmic event, you might say. I know when an idea comes to me, there's a, there's a wow factor, like a whole new world opens up that I never thought of before. Hey, and, and the Big Bang, the birth of the universe. You see, orgasmic. You know, I realize that we haven't talked about the birth of the universe or how Earth came to be yet. Why is that? Oh, we will. Even though it was the beginning of things, we're starting at the end to set the context for how it all began. And you'll realize why that's important when the time comes. More mystery. <laughs> so for now, I'll be content with the birth of an idea or a story. Although not really, Keeper. Jeff, I hate to disappoint, and I realize that I'm trying your chief feature of impatience, even if it's the light side of impatience, your eagerness to know everything. All there is to say about birthing ideas and cultures and epochs, even a universe, is that we're all conduits for all that exists without explanation. And what I mean by that is that you see the world around you, and most of you don't ask about it or marvel at it. You just accept it and go on your way. When an idea or a story comes to you, you simply shrug it off, going back to whatever occupies your attention and time. Now, some of you do ask and marvel. So when an idea or a story comes to you, you receive it as a gift to share your purpose in the world. The birth of something for a human often requires an awareness of the interconnectedness of everything, so you'll notice the signs. Hmm. You've heard of the concept of the hundredth monkey, no doubt. I believe so. That's the theory that when a certain number of monkeys on one island all adopt a new behavior, monkeys on another island with no contact with these monkeys begin to adopt the same behavior, even though they can't possibly know about the other island and the other monkeys. I'm not sure that's it exactly, but it's something like that, right? Yes, it's the interconnectedness, that collective consciousness. And there wasn't really a hundredth monkey, Jeff. No, it's just the idea of a tipping point. Yes, that's really what it is about. It's a tipping point. How do we relate that to the birth of human ideas and behavior? Oh, this is where it gets so very interesting. Because you're also creative, ideas are birthing everywhere. Because you're more diverse than those monkeys, you have 121 ideas about what's happening in the world and how humanity should navigate it all. And it's become part of the chaos of the planet because you all want to belong, to follow someone's lead or be a leader. And there are just so many leaders out there right now, the thought leaders, the healers, the politicians, and the religions. And to top it off, you've got the advertisers and the media telling you what to believe. Or buy. Mm -hmm. Yes. You're all trying to sort yourselves into these containers rather than seeing the whole of humanity and working together. The integral approach. Instead, you're a lot of solopreneurs, not unlike those toddlers in the room with only one toy that we've talked about. Only you're operating for good, not greed. Well, most of you, at least. There does seem to be a lot of competition for our attention and consciousness these days. And that is good food for thought, Keeper. I remember you said once that the old and mature souls all want to be here on Earth right now, 
and that they are fully expressing themselves. So it's not by design that we've got so many thought leaders, healers, politicians, religious leaders to choose from. You know, even as I say that, it feels like a separate conversation. Yes, you're right, it does. So this birthing of ideas on Earth right now feels a bit like population out of control, not unlike your own overpopulation, Jeff. I do see the similarities, yes. And I imagine the birth of an era is a lot like the hundred monkey theory, whether it's a renaissance or a dark age. You imagine well, Jeff. There is a beginning of a new era even as we speak. Take the current political climate, what's happening in the US, what's happening in Turkey, the UK's exit from the European Union, the conservatism of Israel, Australia, Colombia, South Korea. There's more, of course, and you get the point. Conservativeness is growing and it will become an era in the history of your world. Yeah, well, I hope there's still someone left to read about that era, Keeper. It is a frightening time in the world. So maybe it's time to talk about the other side of birth, Jeff. Perhaps it's time to talk about death and dying in both the literal and the figurative sense. Great. That's the type of comment that does nothing to encourage me, Keeper. Well, Jeff, the monkeys have already learned the behavior and they're showing up everywhere. We do need to understand why and how things die before we can even begin to understand how to change that. It might benefit us to start with the literal, the end of a human life. Go ahead, Keeper. So, from the first lens first. At the end of a human life, the soul is never alone, and once it begins the process of separating from its human form, the soul is aware of that. There are those souls whose sole purpose, S-O-L-E, is to witness the returning energy to our realm, to receive and welcome. Is that tenderness I spoke of being fully expressed at that time? Now there's an adjustment period. Memories of the human form, emotional energy and more requires time to reflect. A resting place, let's call it. So again, you're moving quickly through something that we need more time to process. Right. So just as there's a connection made between the human organism and the soul before birth, there's a separation made when the human organism, I'll call it that for the sake of consistency, Jeff, is dying. The soul must separate from the human when that happens. Or what? What? You said the soul must separate from the human, and I asked, what happens if it doesn't separate? Oh, when a soul doesn't separate from its human form, it is possible that a soul may get trapped between the realms. Ghosts and spirits, Keeper? Well, humans have created quite a mythology around it, Jeff, so it shouldn't be any more difficult to believe than anything else we've talked about. Though I realize it might not be the best testimonial. When a soul remembers its separateness, it's able to separate. When a soul is traumatized or caught in emotional memory, often it doesn't remember its separateness and it gets caught between the worlds. Sometimes that leads a soul to believe its contract isn't complete, so it lingers as a spirit trying to accomplish something. So a soul is aware that something is about to happen to the human and typically it separates and makes its journey back to the soul's realm, except when it doesn't. Yes, that's it. What happens when it doesn't? I, I understand the idea of spirits or ghosts. I mean, uh, how does that get resolved? Well, sometimes it's resolved with the help of humans who are here to do this work. Their purpose is to help souls caught in the in-between crossovers of the soul's realm. There are quite a lot of humans pretending to do this work, and many are genuine, I assure you. Sometimes it's the soul itself that resolves the conflict once it feels that his work is done. You don't intervene? Well, not in the way I think you intend that. Remember that we're all exactly where we're supposed to be, so there's no intervention, not for humans and not even for souls. Okay, let me ask you. When those dying say they see their loved ones, you know, the ones who've already passed on? Ah, they're seeing the souls who contracted with them in their human lives. 
Yet they see them as humans because it's easier for them during the dying time. It's something familiar, a comfort, if you will. And the soul also recognizes them, too, on a different level. So there's also comfort there for the returning soul. So is the consciousness of all this coming from the soul or the human? You can probably guess why I'm asking. Is this another way of asking when does a human life start and now when does it end? Here's what I'll say about it from the second lens. Any living organism will move away from a stimulus. You poke at something and it reacts, yes? Any living organism will move towards a food source because there's a stimulus from that food source that's programmed to attract the organism. It's a predictable behavior that doesn't imply consciousness. Although that interconnectedness of the organism and its food source is fascinating. And yes, I get what you're saying. Now, it takes a type of consciousness to think independently and create, Jeff. Well, even to destroy, for that matter. It takes the individual consciousness that the soul brings to a living organism. And without the soul, a sentient being is nothing more than a living organism that has its own predictable behaviors, as well as a collective interdependence with other living beings. I'm raising my hand here because I'm concerned about losing the audience. I mean, this is a lot to take in, Keeper. So let's take it one step at a time. An organism has predictable behaviors. An amoeba, for example, may slither around at the bottom of a pond, and yet no amoeba has ever written a piano concerto. Or opera, at least not that I know of. Hmm. All amoeba display similar predictive responses to stimuli. Now, sentient beings, on the other hand, are capable of discerning how they respond. And in order to do that, it takes a soul and everything that comes along with that soul. Okay. So without a soul, is a human being just another living organism with predictive responses? Well, even with a soul, you have some predictive responses because you're still a living organism. But it's impossible to answer your question about not having a soul because it's never been done, despite the egregious actions of some humans in your history and at present. Oh, and Dr. Frankenstein's creation. Although even then, in the end, Frankenstein's monster was a sentient being. He acted with the discernment, didn't he? Unpredictable responses. Maybe that's a better way to describe being a living, breathing human. Interesting that you know that, Keeper. And it was only to the other humans, who presumably had souls, that he was a monster. I'm concerned that we're about to go down a rabbit hole. The idea of a human believing that he could create life with a collection of body parts, it holds a caveat for all of us. So I'm going to stop and get us back on track. Yes, please, Jeff. We could talk about Dr. Frankenstein and his creation and all its social implications at another time. Good plan, because I'll probably walk off into young Frankenstein here, and we don't want to go down that path. You know, as I'm hearing you say it, and knowing that I've said it too, we always say death and dying. We say it that way as if death comes before dying. I mean, why is that? When I say dying and death, it just it sounds wrong. Well, maybe because death does come before dying. Hmm? How so? Well, there's clinical dying and the clinical death that you humans created for your own understanding and agreement of what death and dying mean, just like you continue to create agreement and understanding about the start of human life. When it comes to pronouncing a human as deceased, remember that in the past it was necessary to find ways to identify this because medical knowledge was scarce. A loss of human consciousness was often mistaken for death, which didn't bode well for the unconscious human, did it? Ah, the invention of the safety coffins of the 18th century with bells and trap doors. I've heard about them. It's where your human expressions saved by the bell and dead ringer come from. Oh, just a bit of human trivia there, Jeff. <laughs> well played. Now, in the dying time, the human heart stops, which usually signals a clinical death. 
And there's also a death wave in the brain that commences as the other brain waves cease. That death wave portends a journey into unconsciousness for the human, ironically with the heightened sense of consciousness for the soul. The soul awakens to its separateness from the body. The soul and the human are alchemic. There's no easy way to separate the two except in the dying process. And yet, death is also a process in the human body. Some of the senses shut down after the clinical death is pronounced. So the term death and dying makes perfect sense. I seem to recall reading that the same chemical that's released when we dream is also released as we're dying. That chemical comes from the pineal gland, which is also called the third eye or the seat of the soul. Is that first lens evidence? Could that explain near-death experiences or NDE? Or the light that those who have experienced NDE talk about in, and seeing our deceased loved ones before we die? Well, let me ask you, if it did explain all that, what would you conclude? Humans are drawn to the polarities when it comes to death. There's either no such thing as a near-death experience or the chemical itself is seen as a portal into the spirit world. You see the challenge when we talk about this? There's an interconnectedness to everything. Dreaming is the soul's way of coming to consciousness. A great many souls still do their best work when the human is sleeping, seeing into the future, receiving messages from beyond, working out the challenges that haven't been faced, sorting the events of the day, sometimes even acting as spirit guides for other souls. All that and more. That's one busy night. And does add another layer of complexity to the first lens. Or simplifies it. It all depends on how you interpret it. Fact is, I don't exactly know how to interpret it. We are emptying the ocean here with a spoon, Keeper. I understand. And some things will always remain a mystery, Jeff. At least for now. I have a question. About dreaming? If I may, death happens many different ways for humans. Humans seem to value death by natural causes. Old age, for example, or dying peacefully versus accidental or violent death. I surmise that how you leave this realm matters to you, that some types of death are offensive. Is that true? It is, because we honor life. You know, we expect our passing to be honorable too. I'm guessing that's also different for you. Well, for the soul's realm, it's more about purpose and learning. So how death occurs is less important than the purpose that the death served? Well, it's both actually. Often the how it happens is what's meant to activate those who are impacted by the human death. So we're really in polarity here. We are offended by senseless, stupid events that take the lives of humans. We are angered by violent deaths against women and children, for example, actually against any human or living creature. And what does that activation do? Does it create change or does it create more violent energy? Depends on the person. Or it's the soul. Again, not to feel played here, people, humans deserve better than that. Hmm, interesting, making a mental note. Seriously? Well, you seem to be making a legitimate complaint. I did. It was. So I've made a note. About me or about what I said? What about the complaint, Jeff? Well, thanks. You're welcome. Moving on, Keeper. I've read that when a human is aware that he or she is minutes or seconds away from death, there's a moment of acceptance. I'm reminded of some things I've experienced that were inevitable, things I couldn't stop even if I tried. You know, it's like just regular things we all experience throughout our lifetime. And even if we dreaded those moments, when the time comes, we just simply accept them and move forward. So I'm wondering, is that how death works? Is there a reason for that and why humans don't go kicking and screaming? Well, some do go kicking and screaming, and you're right. Most humans reach a point of acceptance, and it happens for many reasons. The human soul connection is heightened at this time, 
when the release of natural chemicals in the brain begins to prepare you for what's about to come, that heightened state of consciousness again, deep in your souls, and I really mean that literally, you know that this human life is temporary. In moments like these, truth is all that really matters. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how attractive you are, how many degrees you've amassed or how many languages you speak. What about forgiveness and remembrance? I understand that those are also last thoughts of those who are dying. There is usually regrets for things done or not done. This has nothing to do with a human's religious beliefs. It's purely human response to a deferred life that so many of you live. And by deferred, you mean I'll do it tomorrow or when I have everything that I need, that's when I'll take the vacation or share my work with the world. Something like that? Yes. These are especially tangible in the moments before death. And there's also a need for meaning. Humans often look back and wonder if they'll be remembered, albeit if only by their family and friends. Wanting this temporary life to be remembered somehow is very important. And it's all the heightened consciousness of the soul at the moment that all the variables are stripped away and the soul is free of the human limitations. It's sad, really. Think how much more we could do if we remembered that, even just a little bit more than we do. To really make a difference, wouldn't that be a greater experience than struggle and pain? Well, doing all those things you regret not doing or forgiving yourself for what you believe you did wrong or failed at, that seems to be to be the greater experience, Jeff. I want to circle back to what we said about violent or senseless death, because there's more to say about that. You're still part of the natural world, even though you separated yourselves from it. And in the natural world, everything dies. And the manner in which things die is as varied as how things live. And that still includes humans, even though you barricade your no longer living forms within steel coffins to keep out the natural world and prevent yourselves from returning to it. Such incredible resistance to who you really are. And only recently is there consciousness about how you could return to Earth, honor it, and your human lives. It's the honoring of the human life when all we have left is a human form keeper. There's some respect required here, I think. Oh, and no disrespect intended. Just a noticing about burial rituals and what you put into the earth as you try to keep the earth separate from your human forms. There's a paradox there, Jeff, which to me suggests respect to the highest level. Speaking of respect, most of us accept the natural order of things, and yet we're also affected seeing so much senseless death, whether it's a human or an animal. We understand the food chain, and yet it's still hard to watch on all those nature specials on TV, you know? It's especially hard when an animal is killed by humans. Say more about that. You know, slaughtering elephants for their tusks, or rhinos for their horns, sharks for their fins, baby seals for their fur, whales for their oil. I mean, I could go on. It's not about food for survival, except maybe with some indigenous cultures. So instead, it's become an industry in the civilized world that takes as much as it can from the natural world. And then there are people who kill animals for pleasure and sport sometimes even endangered species. And, you know, that, that pisses me off, quite frankly. And I think it angers a lot of people, some of whom are then activated into action to stop it from ever happening again. Ah, activation into action. That personal impact that we've talked about. The animal kingdom mourns its losses too, you know, even though you see grief and mourning as remarkably human. And the plant kingdom feels lost too, I should add. You remember our conversation about trees? I remember the story you told about trees feeding stumps of other trees that have been cut down like a network of trees and fungi helping each other. Yeah, I remember that. I do. I'm trying to take this all in, and I hope the listeners are too. It's, uh, it's just a, it's a lot to take in. I'll say that much. You all make room for the next generation of your species, and you can only do that by giving the next ones your space here, or like your trees, your root systems. 
Earth is already facing a population crisis. What would happen if you all lived longer or even lived forever? Clearly, we'd run out of space or have to find more space somewhere else. Yes, and to find space elsewhere means what? Another planet? You know, that's a possibility. Just this week, Stephen Hawking came out saying, we've only got about 100 years left on Earth and we better find somewhere else to go. So that's a possibility. But um, what's on my mind now is like, what about the gender evolution you talked about in our past conversations? Well, gender identity and preference evolution is meant to create more options about what it means to be a loving species, not to extend your lives. Okay, then what about procreation? Well, procreation will continue. New stories there too, as your science advances. Human children are part of the mystery, new life, new ideas, so close to spirit. To lose them would be to lose that part of you. Keeper, you mentioned living forever, or at least living longer. And these days I'm seeing more and more articles about extending human life, or curing disease, stopping aging, even cryogenics. What can you say about that? Hmm, the second lens, the environment, need versus want. Do you need to live forever, or do you just want to, and why? As you make advances in science, it's difficult not to consider the question, again, someone's purpose, to see how human lives may be extended. Human life expectancy has changed so much over the centuries. There was a time when a human was lucky to live till 30, and then till 50, and now it's what, somewhere close to 80? I think so, or 70-something. The second lens, the environment, has a lot to do with life expectancy increasing, but will you live forever? Well, I have to ask, to what end? To learn, to experience. Frankly, I don't know. It always seems like a good idea when someone brings it up, although without the vision of what that life would be, I think it's difficult to know if that's really a good idea. I mean, health would be a number one priority. Usefulness and what a person could contribute would be important. You know, the thing that concerns me the most when I think about all this, I mean, who would take advantage of an extended life? Would it only be those who could afford the medical advances or technology? Take cryogenics. Well, you mentioned that. What about it? Well, it's expensive, isn't it? It's only the wealthy could afford to freeze themselves. And what kind of a world would that create? And, you know, even that aside, what kind of ego does it take to think that 100 years from now, a future generation would welcome you or even want you? The world is changing so rapidly. How effective would you be in that world? You'd probably be more of a drain on resources, frankly. You need to be trained, and why train someone from the 21st century to do a 22nd century job? I think there's just a lot of ego in someone wanting to be frozen, Keeper. That asks a lot of good questions, Jeff. The 21st century human could easily become a dinosaur, extinct in the 22nd or 23rd century world, unless it was someone worth freezing for future generations, and even then, that's dangerous ground, determining who's worthy and who's not. I agree. And you like this question, Keeper. Would you keep the same soul, or would another soul contract with you for the next time around, assuming your original soul doesn't want to be frozen along with you? Oh, that's a good one, Jeff, a frozen soul. I'll have to share that one in the waiting room. Although, as I think about it, there are some souls who relish that experience of waking up as a dinosaur in an advanced world. It would be a good learning experience for them, now I think about it. I'll have to take your word for that, Keeper. You know, E.M. Forster said, death destroys a man. The idea of death saves him. Writing a new story about living forever seems more like science fiction than reality and, and more trouble than we might even realize. Our impermanence is what keeps us human, at least for now. But most of you live as if you're going to live forever, even when you don't. And that's your story about it, Jeff. Point well taken, sure. So, are we ready to move on? Let's move on. 
We haven't talked about the figurative death and dying of ideas or cultures yet. There's more to the environmental story before we talk about that. There's the dying of climate and water and air. All of these are deaths unto themselves if you believe that Earth is a living, breathing entity. I thought this wasn't going to be apocalyptic. Here's the evolutionary question. A sixth mass extinction on the planet would mean death for many species. And there's dying on the Earth everywhere right now. You're so dangerously close to another mass extinction, and there are powers in play that will hasten it if something isn't done. So instead of asking, how can I live forever? Maybe the question should be, how can the human species live forever? How can other sentient species live forever, not as individuals, you understand? No, as a species, I get it. The evolution of what's happening on Earth right now is happening because when one power or species steps back or disappears, another one steps in. The universe doesn't tolerate a void for very long, Jeff. And when this happens, usually there's a change in the story, an evolution. I want to talk about that. And what comes to mind for me is a different evolution. All these countries trending towards conservatism, like the United States, for example, pushing away from climate change and the environment. It's certainly one of the variables or stories taking place and one I want to challenge. If the United States continues its assault on the environment, because it's more than just climate, Jeff, expect other countries to awaken to their consciousness and step in. Granted, it wouldn't be much of a change in story because only the U.S. for itself as a protector. The rest of the world has always done more about climate and the environment than the U.S. The difference now is that the U.S. has actually declared itself to be a predator. And that's something I think a lot of people in the world are gravely concerned about now. Well, they should be gravely concerned because the environment will survive and evolve whatever humanity does to it. Humans may not be so lucky. No, let me say it outright. Humans will not survive these actions against the planet, and what happens will happen with great collateral damage to other species as well. Earth will continue without humans. It will take some time to recover, and maybe it will evolve into something new, and either way, without humans. And I must mention something else before we move on. There is a quickening happening in the consciousness of humanity. A quickening? Uh, a flutter of life? Yes, a waking up to what's been created and a waking up to purpose. If we think about Earth as the womb of humanity, there's been an incredible quickening in the past year or so that must be mentioned here. And that's a good thing, yes? Well, it's very hopeful. It's what many of you have come to be part of. So let me recap. Even if Americans believe they were champions of protecting the environment, they weren't, were they? I mean, there are other countries doing so much more. Ireland is totally divesting from fossil fuels. Costa Rica, Denmark, Finland, Scotland, Norway, and this quickening is showing up at exactly the right time as the U.S. tries to go back to a story as old and dirty as coal, for that matter. And why? To make America great again? The quickening is very timely, Jeff. And making something great again depends on the story. Is it a story that marginalizes diversity or keeps the privileged 1% safe, the resource and material hoarders, the ones capable of freezing themselves cryogenically for future generations? Is that the story that will make all of you great again, or only some of you? If I were a future generation, I might consider pulling the plug on those frozen humans. <laughs> <laughs> no, that really was quite harsh. Sorry about that. The third dimensional voice does sometimes get the better of me. Yet in all seriousness, this is about clearing all of that privilege out of the human ecosystem. Something's being created here, and there's an opportunity for other countries to step in as champions. These countries may be rich and powerful, or they may be part of what you call the underdeveloped nations. The quickening is happening across the planet. Will it be enough to counterbalance the new advocacy of conservatism around the world? Well, that's a story yet to be written. 
And perhaps we're writing a new chapter given the results of the French election the other day. I wonder if this quickening is enough. I mean, I'm really asking. Or will it be nearly enough and no contest? Well, nearly enough still offers the possibility of hope. And it might help to know that while you're figuring this all out, the planet is doing the same. Evolution, the third lens, is all over this possibility. Can you say more about that, Keeper? Well, consider how the planet is reacting to environmental pressures that humans have created. Wild extreme weather, floods, drought, disease, extinction of species, all in the name of adaptation and evolution while you progress or regress, depending on your stories and lawmakers. Earth itches under all the concrete that you've poured, and it creates earthquakes and landslides, avalanches and eruptions. Ultimately, it may be Earth who decides if you stay or go, and she may give you that choice to make on your own. May I share something with you? It was written by a human, by the way, so may I share it with you and the listeners? Of course, please. There comes a point when you must reveal yourselves for who you really are. Even as you rage in the names of your gods and goddesses and strain and suffer to be something else entirely. What lives in that moment when you are discovered, found out like a masked reveler who at the stroke of midnight removes the thin veil that's kept his identity hidden? What is revealed is truth. The truth that what comes and goes in this impermanent world may be decided by that thinning veil, by an act, or a whisper, or a tear. Will you be one of the beings that reveals itself as part of everything and remains? Or will you be one of the beings lost forever, all for the sake of ego, affluence, and privilege, for hunger, poverty, and violence? Time will tell. Time that in the blink of an eye will create a cascade of events that will last another forever, for all who remain to witness it. Powerful. Sounds as if you're telling us to wake up and decide if we're in. Meaning all in with all beings on Earth. Or if we're willing to risk extinction as a species by continuing our very unconscious ways. That is essentially the perspective that I offer, Jeff. And yet I offer it with love to humanity as a messenger and not as a messiah, mind you. How is that with love if one of the outcomes might be the annihilation of the human species? Well, while that may seem like an angry or punitive choice, it's actually the lesser of two evils. The other being? Well, that humanity continue on its present course and take this entire realm with it, get caught in the emotions and become one of those ghosts we talked about. Now, let me be clear, there's no punishment here. You will continue. You'll return to the soul's realm as souls and be part of the energy of all that exists without explanation. And this earth will be a realm for the creatures that intuitively understand the connectedness of everything. It will save you and Earth and its creatures to continue, even if the story of how you continue changes. It is a loving step. That's a tough perspective, Keeper. You love us so much that you're going to annihilate us. Oh, no, Jeff. You'll do that yourselves. Okay, I, I need to spin this a bit. I want to make up that you're telling us this because we are loved. I mean, is that it? Is it because we are loved that so much is happening to us right now? Are you trying to wake us up, Keeper? Well, if that were true, what would you be activated to do? I think I've got to let that question sit in space for a while. If this, meaning all the extreme conditions in the world, what we call here a voice of evolution radio, the age of consequence, if it were all because we are loved, a wake-up call. I need to seriously consider what I'm activated to do and what I will do, because frankly, to do anything less is unthinkable. 
What comes and goes in this impermanent world may be decided by, what was it again? That sinning veil veil by an an act, act, a whisper, whisper, or a tear. I hate to say it, but we're at the top of the hour. An appropriate place for an ending, even though we never really talked about the metaphoric death of ideas or cultures and how to let go and mourn those as well. So we'll do that another time, Keeper. I think there was more than enough today to keep the listeners going for a long time. And I want to thank our listeners. I'd love to know what you think about today's program. I've said this before. We'll say it again. I feel like we're on this journey together, so definitely more to come. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask the Keeper or to continue the conversation with us, please reach out to me at jeff at voiceofevolutionradio.com or to linda at linda at voiceofevolutionradio.com. And until next time, create conversations that awaken, inspire, and activate. Jeff? Are you still there, Keeper? I want to add something about evolution. Okay. Evolution isn't a straight line. It isn't a series of ascending steps that takes humans or any other species into enlightenment or superiority. It's merely a response to what's happening in the environment that's reached a critical mass. As humans learn more and more about why and how a species evolves, you take this evolutionary knowledge and engineer things using other species to study and model your diseases in the hope of finding cures, for example. You also use this knowledge to engineer fish that develop faster, cows that produce a low lactose gene, male mosquitoes that die in the midst of their reproductive cycle, artificial spider silk and goat's milk, and then of course the ridiculous things like glow-in-the-dark cats and other species. You will eventually look to the human genome and begin to change that too. There is a creative genius lying in wait for you there, and there's also an impending danger. Whoever controls the human genome controls humanity. Young souls keeper, Toddlers playing with our DNA? Well, humanity will create from all these things and evolution will respond. And that in turn will impact the first lens, souls and their purpose. It's all that exists without explanation in action. You know, I'd like to get some guests on the program and talk about the science of all that, Keeper. And thanks for that addendum to our conversation today. Until next time. Till next time, Jeff. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.